The Outer Sanctum is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to Elders past and present. Good plan, good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Outer Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Hello and welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. The preliminary draft order is in for the W. We had blockbusting scenes for the M at the G and we've got reports headed to see our old mate, Mr P. That's right, this episode of the Outer Sanctum is brought to you by the letters OMG. It's Emma-Rays here and I'm joined by my football-loving feminist sanctum siblings. You know I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Hi there, everyone. It's Kate Sear. Hi, I'm Julia Kiera. And hi, it's Lucy Racia. <laughs> that was my snort earlier on. If it's survived the edit, oh, I, I hope the snort does. How are you, my loves? It's been a while since we've dosey died together. Are you well? Very mm. good. I can see a Hawthorne scarf behind you, Emma Ray. So that makes me feel very happy because I know we're going to talk about AFLW draft. And are we going to talk about Hawthorne and the Suns? No, we are not. No. <laughs> <laughs> the weekend footy was actually pretty good. The um, SANFLW grand final was played on the weekend where North Adelaide got up over Sturt and it was live on Channel 7, which was pretty exciting times. And in the um, VFLW, the home and away matches have finished up. In the AFLM, we saw some real old-fashioned shellackings with St Kilda Suns and Bulldogs stashing percentage away for a rainy day. I'm keen to know there wasn't many Hawthorne highlights um, in the M. Maybe maybe there's some sunshine in the um, VFLW, but, Katie, what were your highlights? Oh, Fremantle against Melbourne. I thought that was just a, such an exciting game to watch, it, unless you're a D's fan, in which case block your ears while I take you back through some of the highlights. But for those who missed it, this was a game in which at half time the D's were up six goals eight to two goals seven. I don't know what happened at halftime. Some some miracle happened because Frio came out and then kicked 12 goals in the second half, eight goals in the third quarter, and Melbourne managed just one. It's genuinely one of the best halves of footy I've ever seen a team play. It was super exciting. There were really strong performances by Andy Brayshaw and Will Brody in the midfield. Lockie Schultz kicked four goals, two goals from Rory Lobb, who I think of as George McFly. <laughs> Michael Walters had one of the goals of the year. Michael Fredericks with, I think, what has to be the goal assist of the year and two goals in what was probably his best ever game. So I just loved watching that game. I I thought it was great and good for footy to see Melbourne uh, lose. I'll be better for the win, blah, 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 all of that kind of, uh, better for the loss rather, um, all of that kind of thing. But yeah, it was great. And it really felt like the competition this year has opened up as a consequence. Before we move on to Julia's highlight, when Kate just said then, it close your ears if you haven't heard it, which is ludicrous at this point <laughs> of, of social media and absolute wall-to-wall coverage of the AFL um, at all times. It just reminded me of old school. Do you remember when the news used mm. to put up the scores? Um, I want you to confirm, did they play for your eyes? For your eyes only. Or something like, like if you don't want to know the did. scores, look away now. I don't remember what it was. 
Was it Lucy? Yeah, you know. I think it's our vintage and I think that is correct. I will go and I'll do some research <laughs> into that for next that? week. The, it's, it's a charming thing that has actually fallen victim to the information superhighway um, complex of the <laughs> 20th century. <laughs> I really miss it. I really miss it. Uh, Julia, what were your highlights? Well, I can't talk about Carlton, um, even though Alicia sometimes loves it when I say Carlton. But... My highlight was the first game of the round, Richmond Swans. I think it was a cracking game. Richmond looked like they were going to win it. Then the Swans come back. And then even though I do go on and on about how men in footy just talk about the same thing over and over again, I've loved them talking about this one, the non-call 50-metre penalty that happened. For those, again, who didn't watch it or have managed to avoid the chatter about it, there's a stoppage Still not sure that that's a word. But anyway, there's a stoppage um, and there's six points in it. Uh, Dion Prestia is being held. They blow the whistle for a free, but a second later the siren goes. Chad Warner picks up the footy because he th- he thinks it, the Swans have won and he kicks it into the grandstand. And then there is a bunch of knickers in a twist by everyone thinking that there they should have been a 50-metre penalty paid for that. And basically you would have thought that there wasn't an election last week with how much we are all talking about this non 50 but it was my highlight just because I love a bit of controversy at the end of a game when it's not involving my team. I think that there's been a lot of talk about it. it's the return of common sense umpiring, but perhaps the return of common sense umpiring should return earlier than five seconds before the end of the game. Maybe it should. <laughs> you should have kicked your common sense goals before the siren went, is that what you're saying? Like maybe we should start with common sense umpiring and then and then go from there. Um. <laughs> Did you see that Damien Hardwick actually tweeted? He tweeted a, a gif of a dog looking curious and it said, common sense, sorry, what? With a dog meme? And I was like, I'm not sure that you're allowed to. Will he get a please explain from the AFL for that? He's going to get a 50-metre penalty. Oh, I think he Maybe should. Not. Was it the dog that you said you saw the other day, Lucy, that was dressed like a detective wearing a, um, a detective's trench coat that you told us about on the group chat, I which we were all really I upset not to have seen? I confirm or deny. <laughs> I would love it if that dog was actually one of the officials at the, <laughs> the tribunal. Yeah, I feel like that dog could have a pretty important role on a board somewhere. Was it wearing yeah. a gabardine trench coat? Yes. Maybe it was a don't think do dog. Yeah. <laughs> it was. It was John was Kennedy. Kennedy. John Kennedy Jr. Jr. Don Kennedy Jr. Jr. <laughs> it's hard to top seeing a dog in a trench coat with a really small monocle on us and a and a pipe, Lucy. But what was your highlight? <laughs> well, I am going to talk about that Hawthorne Gold Coast game, but I'm not going to mention Why? Hawthorne. Good. <laughs> In Gold Coast's 67-point win over Hawthorne, they had 12 goal kickers. Mm. That is an incredible spread of goal kickers. But the two that I want to talk about are Malcolm Rosas Jr. and Joel Jeffrey, who were the first players recruited from the Darwin Academy to play with the Suns. And they got to play in front of home fans. And Malcolm is was born in Darwin and it was so exciting to see both of these players play in front of that home crowd. Malcolm's first goal in the first quarter was fantastic. Joel took a mark in the first quarter that could have been a mark of the year contender and then went on to kick a goal from the boundary in the second quarter, which 
definitely has to be a contender for goal of the year. Mm. Did you guys see it? Yeah. Incredible. Sadly, yes. <laughs> Sadly, yes. No, no, no. It was good. Great things to say. It was great. And Russell Jeffrey, who is Joel's dad, he's a former Saint and a former Brisbane Bear and also part of the Northern Territory team of the century, said that from a parent's point of view, to go to the Oval that you've been at forever and watch your son play, I don't know if it gets any better than that. Oh, that's amazing. My highlight came from that game too was, I don't know if you guys saw it because it's been on a bit of socials, but Sylvia Nolpindich was the first woman to commentate an AFL footy match in Yolongu Martha language on Yolongu Radio. I loved everything that she was saying about the pathway that this will create for the next woman or the next girl who wants to call footy. She'd not done it before. She's She's on radio quite a lot, but she hadn't actually called a game before. And I just loved it. I thought this is an innovation that we've been waiting for and we saw it and um, that it was in an Indigenous language on the Indigenous radio station was a fantastic way to bring new people into commentary, which is just something that we see change so rarely. Are you ready to roll up, roll up and Malay? Yes. Okay. Uh, Last week on the pod, Rana spoke to Paul Marsh, the head of the AFLPA, and I really urge you all to listen to that. I really heard him like I'd never heard him before. What did that sound like? It sounded like happy. Uh, He sounded happy. I've never heard him sound happy before. This week um, he's had quite a different week. There's been chat about the role of the PA in the lives of players after they retire, and I think they're mostly talking about the M here. Kate, can you wrap our heads around how this became a must-discuss? Yeah, so it's come out of a story that broke last week that Sam Fisher, who used to play for St Kilda, has been charged with trafficking commercial quantities of drugs interstate. Um, He has been remanded in custody and faces a a trial or plea, whatever, whatever transpires down the track, but he faces up to, um, you know, 25 years or so in jail. So it's a really um, serious set of allegations. And part of what happened in the immediate aftermath of that story becoming public was a discussion about, as you said, Em, the role of the AFL Players Association in supporting players, not just during their career, but after their career. Players Association and the AFL and clubs, kind of questions were raised and discussions were had about whether something could have been done differently. Um, and Nick Rewalt in particular, as the former captain of St Kilda and I think a you know a good friend of Sam Fisher's, was really outspoken about that and very passionate and believed that both the Players Association and the AFL could have done more and should have done more. He made the observation that a lot of players are struggling after they end their careers. He's talking here exclusively about people who play in the AFL-M, I should say, which is important because at one stage he did make some comments about the AFLW and the fact that he thought they they had the balance much better because, you know, uh, women who play footy have other interests and their lives are in better balance and they don't earn as much. They kind of have their feet on the ground, I guess, uh, a bit more. But yeah, Nick Rewatt was particularly passionate um, about it and, and pretty critical of the Players Association and the AFL. And then other people have come out in the aftermath and offered their opinions. It seems weird, Kate, because I mean, I'm not really across what should happen after players finish but with a little bit of digging what I learned was they actually do have like a retirement fund like they they stash help them stash money away for to make sure that they're saving they encourage players to have another vocation or study and these players also get a pretty incredible education going through the AFL system they also get access to privilege and networking I feel like they're all the pieces of the puzzle I, I feel terrible for if people have a terrible time after they leave the game but I 
I mean, with that many players going through the system, that's kind of just what's going to happen, right? Like, it, am I being heartless to say that? No, I mean, I think I think to some extent, what you're getting at is a you know the question is ultimately can the system kind of keep everybody's lives on track or prevent every kind of social problem from emerging and I think the answer to that has to be no like I I don't think I don't think they can people come and come into footy with all kinds of you know backgrounds and issues and you know those issues may or may not be um, exacerbated by their time in the game but I I do think it's unfair and unrealistic to sort of assume that the players association could prevent all that but to me the, the kind of most telling aspect of the story is actually that this conversation was happening to begin with. So Nick Nick Rewalt made those remarks on on the couch on Fox Footy, and he was asked some questions about it by Gary Lyon. Gary Lyon sort of said to him, "You know, you were the captain during that era, and people will have questions about your captaincy, and um, will ask whether you could have done more, and should have done more, and could have done better." Ross Lyon, the coach at the time, has now been asked those questions. These kind of conversations also happened years ago when information about the history of drug use at the West Coast Eagles emerged, the era when players like Ben Cousins and Daniel Chick and Chad Fletcher and Daniel Kerr were playing at at that club and some of those players had drug issues, it's well reported, Um, and John Worsfold was asked to kind of account for the club culture. I, I kind of understand why people ask that question because in a way the assumption is that people who end up using drugs or getting involved in drugs have kind of strayed off the path in some way. Their lives have unraveled. Um, things have gone badly for them and, and that drug use could have been prevented. And that is the case for some people, but it's actually not the case for all people. It's a really troubling stereotype, I think, that all people who use drugs use it for that reason and that it's always a kind of product of trauma and and kind of psychological problems. The truth is, and this is an unpopular view, but it is true that People who use drugs are a very large and diverse population of people. People use drugs for all kinds of reasons. Many people use drugs and have a functional relationship to them. And so to me, it was telling that that conversation was happening in this context and that it was happening too in a context where people like Nick Rewalt and now many others have shared what seems to be really private and personal information about Sam Fisher's life. You know, there was a story published in the Herald Sun just the other day where Mark Robinson had quoted from former officials who were saying that Sam Fisher had gone to the club back in 2012, I think it was, asking for help and so on. That, that information, clearly he has never consented that to that information being placed into the public domain. The fact that, that these kinds of conversations are happening can only happen in the context of drug use where people believe that this is open for discussion, that there's mm. and that it's okay. There's a sort of salacious element to it. You know, these stereotypes about people kind of going, you know, a sort of slippery slope, which is the phrase that Robbo used in that article, that people have gone on a slippery slope and their lives have unraveled, kind of I think it ends up with people searching for answers and feeling like it's a legitimate conversation. Kate, do you think the fact that the AFL has this three-strike policy or a drug policy means that commentators and you know officials you know feel that you know it's within the limits to be able to talk about these issues or do you think do you think people really struggle to understand what that three-strike policy is there for 
I think they definitely struggle to understand what it's there for, that's for sure. And, you know, once again, I think in the aftermath of this, we've seen a lot of discussion about whether that three strikes policy is the right approach. And, you know, I understand that it's a subject about which people are passionate. And I appreciate that someone like Nick Rewalt, who has a friendship with Sam Fisher, will feel upset for him and worried for him and, you know, kind of feel strongly about whether the system failed him. But, I think the truth is that a lot of the time people who are commenting on that policy do so from a position of um, very little education about what that policy is designed to do and what and, and, and don't appreciate, I think, that other models are much more problematic, um, particularly punitive approaches. Drug use is still criminalised by and large for most people, for, you know, for most people in most jurisdictions in Australia. And it's the most important point is it's heavily, heavily stigmatised. You know, it's proven time and again in research, and I've done research on these issues too, that people who use drugs are reluctant to seek out treatment. They're reluctant to tell people they use drugs. If people reach a position where they think they might have a drug problem, they're very reluctant to talk to other people about it. They often face discrimination and stigma in healthcare systems when they do come forward. So that policy has to be very carefully and sensitively designed and implemented. And in one of the worst aspects, I think, of this story this week is seeing some of those personal details about Sam Fisher's background thrown about in the media, seeing people talk about the fact that he did come to the club and seek help and so on. Now, whether that was through a three strikes policy scenario, I'm not sure. But, you know, you imagine if you're a footballer in one of those clubs and you do, uh, you know, have a first strike or or even a second strike recorded against your name and you, you know, you, you kind of are then being treated by medical staff and getting counselling and so on. Imagine seeing that Sam Fisher story in the news this week and knowing that 10 years on, former officials and teammates have decided to tell the broad public about what you did in that club, who you went Mm -hmm. to, who you sought treatment and care from. That is a really major factor again that will discourage people from coming forward if they have a problem and, and want to deal with it so to me it's just an absolute mess the the whole scenario yeah it's curious to it's curious to think about almost the call being made and being asked of the PA and the AFL about where was your responsibility on this when it's a player that isn't still in the system and I wonder where their responsibility ends if the public's Uh, or the media's take is that it never ends. Mm. I wonder whether we are asking these questions just because these are public figures that we that we know about. I don't know if you'd be asking the same thing of any other sort of union to be looking after their employees several years after they have left. You know, people obviously retrospectively might address issues that occurred while they're employed but he you know he's been retired for however many years and he's been arrested now so for me it's 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 almost a question of the do we want the tail to wag the dog do we need to beef up all the AFLPA services around retired players to deal with all these problems that were actually constructed by the system that we've funneled all these players through to me that's just a completely bizarre assertion that it's a waste of resources but it's also a waste of people's pain and suffering (laughs) you know why would Mm. you force people to endure these types of things to then offer them psychological help at the end Kate touched on it before about the difference between AFL men's and AFL women's players and that Nick Rewalt touched on the fact that you know perhaps in AFLW the balance has been better struck because 
those players, because they are part-time by the very nature of it, have to have other interests. They study, they work, their identity isn't 100% wrapped up in being a footballer. Now, on this podcast, we have talked a lot about how that's actually a failing of the AFLW um, and that, you know, players need to be able to play the game full time to reach their full potential. But I think we all understand that that comes with uh, a bit of a drawback because we are going to then create a new generation of women and non-binary players where their identity is completely wrapped up in football and, and what then happens to them if they have a career ending injury um, and all that kind of stuff. So that there is the trade-off there. But I think in men's football, year on year on year on year, the identity of, of a male footballer has been so stripped back to just being these absolute superstar heroes that are idolised, that every tiny little thing they do is, is not just scrutinised but is also seen to be almost like of a superhero. Um, mm. And it's not shocking to then think that as soon as they leave that system there is a complete come down. Um, and I think we just need to really reconfigure the whole thing. And I know that I'm asking to kind of uh, for something really quite huge. I think what you're trying to say is that until we treat – all athletes as whole people mm. with all their flaws and you know positives and negatives and all of their authentic selves then we're, we're always kind of setting people up for failure. Yeah, exactly and I think also our expectation around men's footballers that just even look at a body of a male footballer now <laughs> and think about the footballers you grew up looking mm, at, mm. right? Now, I think we would say, well, that's amazing. Look at what 30 more, 40 more years of science and training and advancement in those areas has created. And yeah, it is great, but it also has come with a huge sacrifice from those guys. They're no longer working other jobs. That's all they do is they look after their bodies. They play football. They they can't not if they don't go into um, the season looking like that and with that kind of endurance and bulk and all that, they can't perform. So we are forcing them to do this to play the game for their sole focus to be football. And then when things like this happen, we're shocked by it. And so I think that, you know, the public expectation perhaps needs to change. We, we need to accept that perhaps the game will look a little bit different or, or if we actually want real change, if we really want these players to survive mm. the system. And I just don't think we're anywhere near that. And you even think about the way that if you've ever met a footballer, <laughs> what questions have you asked them? You know, have you asked them about their family or their weather yeah. or have they been on a nice holiday? Like the questions asked to them are always about the team, the club, how you went this weekend. Like we force them into that hole even further by the people around them, their families. You hear footballers always talk about how their family sacrifices so much for that one player to be to be an athlete because the whole family's activity revolves around that one person being able to commit 100% to their sport. You know, there would be heaps of footballers who miss weddings and funerals and christenings and family events and birthdays because they have to go and play a football game. Like that's what we expect, okay? We expect their identity mm -hmm. as a footballer to overrule their identity as a family person, as a son, as a brother, as a partner. For me, it's all part of the one story and I know that it sounds really hard to break it 
and that this perhaps sounds very disconnected to a retired footballer being arrested, but to me it is all part of the one story. Well, the other thing I just have to say, Julia, because it's played on my mind this week, is that part of the problem is that we place players on a pedestal and, you know, I couldn't help but think this week when I saw Nick Rewalt speaking so passionately about that situation and his view that the system had kind of created this problem, that connected into in my mind to the fact that, you know, Nick Rewalt had been also very passionate about another former teammate and that is Stephen Milne when he was accused of sex offences and ultimately pled guilty to a sexual assault, indecent assault. And he went to court with Stephen Milne. He believes Stephen Milne should have still been able to play. He gave him a character reference in that trial, which of, in that hearing, which of course is his right to do. But there's, there's, a, there's a sort of noticeable absence in my mind of discussions about violence against women in particular and how the culture of fandom and the culture of footy can contribute to and shape them. You know, I've, I might be wrong about this, but I don't think anyone has ever asked Dennis Pagan what went wrong at North Melbourne in the late 1990s to create or produce uh, Wayne Carey, who has a history of violence against women and police, uh, a team that also had Glenn Archer in it, who uh, assaulted a man, and Shannon Grant, who assaulted his former partner. Because I think in the minds of journalists and commentators and so on, that problem, that particular social problem, which is an enormous social problem, violence generally and violence against women and sexual violence, is seen as completely separate you know, a kind of natural or inevitable phenomenon, something that we can't intervene in, we can't do anything about. Um, But actually, you know, footy and footy culture frequently contributes to those problems, whether it is, you know, doing things like having, you know, people come out and protest the innocence of players, claim that, you know, women are making up allegations against footballers because they've got money, all of that kind of thing. And yeah, there's a noticeable absence. There's a real Mm. kind of asymmetry, I think, in the problems that we focus Mm. on like drug use within football clubs and the things that just don't ever get talked about. That is just a crushing observation, Kate. That's the moment that, you know, I feel like people are walking their dog right now listening to this and they've just gone, oh, and they've just laid down on the ground in a puddle. (laughs) No, it's true, but it's true. You know, we always push for sport to do more and to be better and, and sport does try. It tries with its voice and it tries with symbols and I think this week after another hideous week in US schools. We've seen sports people and clubs step into the conversation about this time in the States about gun control in a way that we haven't seen them do before. Lucy, what did you notice about the change in the conversation this week? Yeah, so following that horrific school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, we saw the reactions of the sporting world and some of those are the the kinds of messages that we're used to seeing. But I saw some that went beyond the thoughts and prayers to one of we're not continuing with business as usual. I think what we've seen are people and some organisations who have really big platforms decide to try to use them and to affect change. You probably would have seen or heard the press conference where Steve Kerr, who's the coach of the Golden State Warriors, said, I'm not going to talk about basketball tonight. He went on to speak really powerfully and with a lot of emotion about the need for legislative change on gun laws. And in the world of baseball, San Francisco Giants manager Gabe Kapler wrote, a really heartfelt explanation of why he'd be staying in the dugout and not standing for the national anthem for the foreseeable future. Um, He made a comment about the moments of silence that is taken place in too many of them and said, we have our moment over and over and then we move on without demanding real change from the people we empower to make those changes. Later in the week, 
I saw two baseball teams, the New York Yankees and the Tampa Bay Rays, come together to put out a statement saying that in lieu of game coverage, they'll be using their channels to offer facts about the impacts of gun violence. So both of these clubs used their Twitter accounts and their Instagram stories to offer up facts and most importantly, evidence to back up those facts. And millions of people saw and read and interacted with these posts. And for me, it was, you know, in a space where we often see, I guess, a reluctance, um, particularly of white men in sport to be political, we really saw some political statements and, and some action. And with that information that was put out by the Yankees and the Rays, I feel like that was a different sort of action. It was really understanding that one of the ways that we can try to affect change is by giving people good information and and that's what they did. Um, what did you guys think? I'm interested to know what you thought, Katie, when you saw a, a white man say he's not going to stand up for the national anthem and we've talked so much about Colin Kaepernick mm. on this podcast. I, obviously I'm not critical at all of, of anyone who abstains from standing for the national anthem. It's I think it's a really um, important and good place to actually protest. But I was intrigued to know what, what you made of that, Kate. Yeah, it's interesting because you're right. My first reaction was, oh, I don't know that he'll experience the same consequences as Colin Kaepernick will or any other person of colour. Uh, I may be wrong about that. I don't know, but I certainly haven't seen the kind of backlash to him that you might have expected. Yeah, I, I think it was a very powerful week, Lucy, and you run through those examples and they were all really affecting. I must have watched that clip of Steve Kerr 10 times. I was so moved by it. It was really, really powerful. But it also got me thinking about something in a really different context and in a different uh, country, which is in the UK, where discussions about athletes and their political platforms and whether they have an obligation to use their platform to make political statements is unfolding. And that's uh, in relation to tennis, in relation to Wimbledon. I'm sure our listeners know that in the last couple of months after the invasion of Ukraine, there has been discussion about the possibility of banning Russian and Belarusian athletes from competing in Wimbledon. There was a sort of initial talk that Wimbledon believed that players like Medvedev, who plays for Russia, should come out and say something about the invasion, that they had an obligation to do so. And, you know, we've talked a lot on this podcast about the importance of using your platform if you have it and if you can. And also I've said many times on this podcast that I think doing nothing is political. You know, there's no, you, know it's, you, you just can't be neutral in a situation like this, that absence of comment does something. And I still believe that, but I think Wimbledon's really got it wrong here because they've now flipped over into this position where they are demanding that athletes speak up. And um, in fact, they've now banned Russian and Belarusian players from competing. And I think that injunction to speak, that the idea that athletes have to use their platform is really worrying because it overlooks the context, of course, within which they're operating and the potential challenges of criticising your own government, which is a privilege that we have in Australia but which, of course, heaps of other people around the world don't have. It's really a myopic perspective. And in Russia, of course, dissidents and protesters are being arrested every day. They're facing up to 15 years in prison. Many of them have been imprisoned already. So it's crazy to me. But the other big question for me is about who we expect to use their platform and who we ask to speak up and about what. Amnesty International published a report recently in which they called the Israeli occupation of Palestine a form of apartheid. And I don't recall Wimbledon or any other tennis tournament 
insisting that Israeli players denounce Israel or speak up about that or threaten to ban them. And we could run down the list of other countries that have been accused of human rights abuses. And and therein lies the problem, I think, because Russian and Belarusian players are being punished on the basis that they are being silent and on the basis that their their presence at the tournament would be political, apparently. And this is being done by a tennis club who is itself being silent and I think therefore political on other really important geopolitical development. For, for me, it's it's always about reflecting on the balance, I think. Mm. I think it's missing there. I'm Trent Cooper, and you're listening to my equal favourite podcast, The Outer Sanctum. They are often racing in the AFLW sign and trade period, which I always want to call cash and carry. I know it's not that. It's trade and sign. (laughs) (laughs) Julia, some people are unhappy with the way that the uh, draft cookie crumbled. Not me. I'm quite happy with how the draft cookies crumbled. What do we know? What do we know that we didn't know last week? Well, we know a few more details. We know a few more moves. Uh, The AFLW expansion signing period uh, finished on Monday with a last little flurry of uh, signings. You, brown and gold, poos and wheeze, um, will be happy with um, (laughs) your Eileen Gilroy's coming across to you uh, as a, a last signing there. And then pretty quick smart a day later we've started with the actual sign and trade period so um, players that aren't a part of that expansion team uh, movement are actually now being traded so we've seen Nicholas Stevens <laughs> go to St Kilda <laughs> I thought of you uh, today Julia oh. Um, sorry. <laughs> um, and we'll, we'll, we'll see that keep going for a little while longer. The draft is going to happen on the 29th of June, which is after preseason starts. So that's, <laughs> that's handy. But we've seen today, we're recording this on Tuesday, the release of the actual draft order. So yes, your little hawkies are pretty happy because you've got three picks in the top 10, four picks in the top 10. Sorry about that. I've and uh, we're dance. have only got we're dancing. We're doing a little happy dance. We're doing a little happy dance Look, on camera for those who are listening along at home. Someone who is a bit cynical would say that you've got that because you didn't sign well. <laughs> <laughs> That's mean. Well, who's that cynical mean? though? Who, who's cynical on this podcast? Well, why? If everyone is equal, would you get four and Bombers would only get two? Like they're doing it based on who you've picked up so far, which I don't know if just because the Bombers have been little, have been buying the right coffees for the right people <laughs> over the last <laughs> month, they've gotten punished. Who, who's to say how this magic happens? Oh, yeah, your little magic happens sticker on your back of your car down Glenbury <laughs> Road. I think, <laughs> I think we've got four draft picks in the top 10 because it's to compensate with all the trash talk we get from people like you who call us poo and wheeze, you know. It's sort of like reparations. I can't wait to take this back to the secret chat group I've got with Rana and Tess. Uh... (laughs) Not so secret now. I'll be backing into that later on. 
Um, it's going to get really hot and heavy though, isn't it? Because all of a sudden people start trading away their draft picks for other things. Like anything, it's kind of like an everybody's solo for the next couple of days. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And so um, one of the names that's popped up is Kate Sermon from Gold Coast that she's potentially going to go to port, but she couldn't go with it during the expansion period because they'd already hit their limit Gold Coast for how many players they could lose. So now she'll have to be part of a trade. Port, sorry, will we'll, we'll trade away a pick um, in order to get her if they're going to ma- get that done. So there'll be some interesting wiggling around happening there. But look, Port, jeez, uh, oh, they're pulling together quite an interesting looking side that you think is going to going to be pretty amazing to see how they go all the teams actually have started to really you can see the shape of the teams that they're pulling together yeah but we'll see and then the draft happening in the 20 29th of june you know it's still unknown i guess uh, you know we, we don't know of those top ages if everyone's going to nominate we've spoken before about how the year 12 factor and the august start date might mean that players that shouldn't inverted commas be playing this first their first year for 2022b might not um and wait to finish off their studies so there's still a lot to work out there yeah but exciting times what are you girls really excited about i was just thinking about what it must be like what it's potentially going to be like going to school one day and then that night getting drafted and then the next night being required at training like Mm -hmm. it's it's going to happen that quickly because, you know, as you said, training starts, uh, pre-season starts before the draft. And so it's just going to, people are going to have massive whiplash from this, I reckon. Mm. Lou? Well, I mean, at least training will be after school. (laughs) Really after school. It'll be after school and after tutor group. But also, you know, like I have an experience of um, watching a student go through the final years of school and also doing something outside of school that took them away for a term, they were fine. You know, there are systems were put in place and, um, and, and that worked. So I think, you know, this is something that does happen when students do other things outside of school like acting or other other sporting competitions so I'm going I'm choosing to be an optimist I'm going to be a Pollyanna about this you know lots of players are going to make the decision that's right for them I just um it'll be interesting to see you know who who does and who doesn't put their hand up um if we're looking at the the top talent around the country at the moment so you know I hope everyone lands uh somewhere that they're happy to you know sit out this year and watch along and finish off the year and put their hand up next year that's great if that works for them but yeah we might not see as many names in the little bin the draft bin that we would have otherwise. As discussed earlier, the umpires made the news again this week, which is the one place I don't think they like to run backwards into. I think they hate it when they're in the news. Um, Tigers coach Damien Hardwick was, you know, poking the bear, but so was Tiger Tess and she really wanted to seek some answers. So she caught up with the Sanctum's favourite umpire, Chelsea Roffey. Thank you, Emma. Look, when the Tigers lost in a thriller on Friday night, two unrelated and related things happened. The first was me spiralling through the five stages of footy lost grief. We've all been there. Denial, you know, absolutely not. How can this be happening? Anger, this is outrageous. Umpires hate us. 
this all the time. I'm going to tweet bargaining. Okay, I won't tweet, but I'll text the outer sanctum group chat and then maybe the footy gods will turn it around for my good behavior. Depression, our season is over. This is a real turning point. Acceptance, on reflection, we gave up a huge lead. It was probably a, wasn't a 50 anyway, right call play on. And the second thing, of course, was that umpiring was the talk of the footy town again. And so I was pretty surprised actually on Saturday uh, when I turned on the radio at midday expecting all angles of the free to be discussed. And there were heaps of angles, but um, not any of them with any authority. And I was flicking through and I didn't hear a single umpiring voice. And so once again, I realised we're stuck in this cycle where we talk, talk, talk nonstop about umpiring and rules with no intention of educating ourselves and the footy loving public. Anger, outrage, opinion, and we're not breaking the cycle. So I better find myself an umpire. And who better than the friend of the show, groundbreaker, and now new mother, Chelsea Roffey. Hello, Chelsea. Hello, Tess. How are you? I'm good. How are you? More importantly, we're missing seeing you behind the footy goals, but can I just say this is an audio medium, but I can see a little person just nuzzled on your shoulder and I think, are you missing being behind the goals? You look pretty happy. Look, um, flag waving is is good for your arms, but carrying a little thirteen week baby around is um, is very good for the arms. So the old biceps are getting a workout, and I'm, <laughs> I am keeping active. But um, yeah, life has been quite the adjustment, which I know you can relate to yourself, being a relatively new mum. But yep. yeah, quite the adjustment. But little Bonnie is a thriving little girl. She's discovering her voice every day, and it's just. Yeah, completely different lifestyle, but loving it. Oh, yeah. it's so good. <laughs> and have you been following the footy? Because I know with what feels like a bazillion years ago, but that was just like six months ago, I found it very hard to follow the footy. And I now blame that on the fact that Richmond didn't win the flag that year. And so, you know, mm. what was the point of watching anyway? <laughs> I felt like I was like, oh, did that happen? Like I can't really remember that that stage. Are you able to to follow the footy? You used the word uh, authority in your opening and, um, look, I've got to be honest, I'm not really in the loop as much as I normally would be. From time to time I do flick across and try to catch a few minutes here and there. I've got to say, because we try not to have the screens on too much when Bonnie's awake and, you know, I said to my husband, I don't know how we're going to continue this. I did have the footy on one particular day and she caught a glimpse and was absolutely glued to the screen, just the movement and, and watching the, the play unfold. So, yeah, it's it hasn't been easy just finishing tasks, uh, no. <laughs> such as watching a game of footy, but um, try to catch a bit here and there when I can, usually when I'm feeding. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's actually a good spot to be. I had the Olympics. It was great. Just yeah. sat in that chair for a, a substantial amount of time. Even if you've been away. Um, You must have noticed that umpiring has been dominating the discussions this season, both on and off the field. And you and I were talking about this because it actually always kind of dominates. It's a significant part of the game, but Mm. it feels like now the media is kind of catching up and we're having a conversation that maybe we we should have been having a long time ago. I'm going to start. There's a lot to get through before Bonnie makes herself known. First of all, let's start with dissent because it's the big talking point. For you, you have a different perspective, I suppose, being the the goal umpire. Mm. Um, and I'm actually more kind of interested in your in your perspective about the rule because we have on the sanctum a heap of differing opinions about how it's working and how it's rolling out. But from you've been an umpire for a very long time. Is it needed? Look, I think standing in the goals, you do 
you've got that unique view where you're yes you're on the field and you you see a free kick unfold and um look I'll admit as a a footy fan sometimes you see a a free being given or a 50 or something and you sort of you go what (laughs) inside internally of course (laughs) you know on reflection um you sort of look at the professional nature of the game I understand completely that you know it's the heat of the battle um and you've got to understand these guys are adrenaline charged it's elite athleticism you can understand the frustration and standing the goals you know I can look I can look into the field and and see that sometimes and you sort of think oh you know god do we really you know is that a really necessary free for example but (laughs) at the end of the day look in the in the old days it's probably before my time you'd have a situation where you know what the umpire says goes and it's probably is a little bit old school mentality to say look, that's the way this dissent rule is probably being applied um, in the sense of setting an example for the thousands of community football players, spectators, umpires who are out there and they don't have the advantage of security guards and cameras capturing, you know, all everything that happens on the field. And so there is a role to play in setting a standard and a benchmark. So I can understand why it's just uh, it's made to be a very black and white, albeit difficult to interpret at times, <laughs> rule. People aren't necessarily a huge fan of it, but I think the players are at a level where, you know, they're able to adapt despite being the heat of the battle. So, you know, we need more umpires in the game. And if we're going to have a situation where, you know, players are showing dissent constantly, you know, arcing up at the umpires, you know, no one's going to want to do it. At the end of the day, no one is going to want to do that job. So, yeah, I guess I can see both sides. To that point, sometimes in... In media, there's a there's a strong headline, and it'll say umpiring crisis. Right? There's there's not the numbers, and there's going to be no umpires. And is that a reality? It's hard to discern the reality. Do you think that umpiring is in crisis at that community level? Is that what you're seeing? Community level, you do you know often yeah you will have umpires who double up, do three, four games you know, mm. across the weekend. Um, and when you consider that as a, as a part-time job or a hobby or something that you're in tr- trying to entice people to to get into for fun, um, you can see how the, the fun can start to whittle away if you're being called upon constantly to, to fill these matches. So there is always a demand for umpiring. Look, the headlines, you know, I can vouch for being, <laughs> having a, for some full-page imagery of myself being attached <laughs> to some fairly explosive headlines at times, um, including some recent reporting, in, you know, involving female umpires and that hurts to see that when you when you you know you see what's in the headlines um and you sort of think look it it does get blown out of proportion to a degree but the reality is look is it in crisis it's a big term um Mm -hmm. but we need I think the number is 6,000 umpires to actually service the game now. So 6,000 additional umpires to service the game at the rate it is growing. So we see, for example, female footy is growing in leaps and bounds and in order to service the growth in female footy, I think we need an oval a week for the next five years. That's the the figure that gets thrown around in Mm. order to service the growing needs of the game. We need umpires for all of those games. I I don't really like terms like crisis, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) you know, it's serious. And I think what we're acknowledging now and what the AFL is is acknowledging is it's it's a serious situation with regards to the future of footy. And you mentioned there the report that came out. To us, it felt it felt explosive. You said, you know, the headlines. I thought, oh, my goodness, this secret report's been released and all of these things. But were you surprised by that report? Well, I did contribute a foreword to that report. And <laughs> in the process of, of going through um, you know, writing that piece, um, it 
encouraged me to reflect a lot on my own experiences. So, look, I wasn't a part of the interview process for that report. It focused on community umpires. But flicking through it when I was provided with a copy and reading through, I did have moments where, you know, I actually felt upset. Um, I felt really disappointed that we hadn't come further, you know, as a game. And when you realise that other people are seeing this information, probably a couple of responses that occurred for me, the first being, oh my gosh, are we, you know, are we going back 10 years now? This is so disappointing for umpiring because mm. there's a lot of good work that is done um, and a report like this can undermine the good stuff. Now, I'm not minimising at all yeah. some of the little Bonnie's pretty upset about the report as well. Um, <laughs> That's just, Bonnie, I hear you. That's how I just felt. coming to. Um, but it's just really hard being an umpire and someone who cares about umpiring and seeing Mm. such a strong reaction to some clearly unacceptable behaviour, but it's not the whole story. So how do you you confront the problems while also saying, well, look, that's not all that umpiring is. Um, You know, I've worked Mm. in a part-time capacity for the AFL for the past several years, actually working um, alongside Eleni Glusses to we've both got positions that have been in the background working to address some of these recommendations. We were doing that before the report came out. We've continued to do that since the report came out. It was never going to look good regardless of how the report came out. We as lovers of the game and lovers of umpiring are just working really hard to make sure we are providing an environment that enables everyone to thrive. You know, whether it's through female mentoring, uh, which Eleni runs a, a national program around that. I have created some online resources around coach education. So how are you, if you're going to be coaching females, how do we need to create the right environment there? So is it the pain before the progress that, that has to happen? To their credit, this was a report that was commissioned to have evidence-based information around the barriers. You know, there aren't too many organisations that are actually doing that kind of work and saying, well, what are the barriers and what are the problems we need to fix? So I feel optimistic in that regard and and hopefully we can just continue to to highlight some of the the good that's being done while addressing some stuff that really needs addressing. And you just said frustrating, you know, how how are we not further down this path? And I don't think there's a woman involved in football at any capacity that hasn't thought that same thing. And especially in the last year, you go, no, come on, we're done now. Let's let's get forward. But mm. it it takes work and it takes the work that you're doing with, with Alini as well, just to try and get there. And and one thing we always talk about on the Outer Sanctum is cohort and how, how that makes a massive change. If you're going into a situation, you know, you've got backup, you know, you've got people in the same situation as you, other women going along the journey with you, it can make such a big difference. But in umpiring, I mean, the, the numbers are still small at, a, at the national level. And so it's going to take a little while for that cohort to, to kick in, but it's going to be there and that's going to be amazing. Yeah. And I think further to that point, I know Eleni's had her experiences coming through. I've had my experiences coming through. When you are one person or one of a few, uh, we've got Sally over in Perth, you pick your battles and you uh, are very careful about the way you go about being a part of this culture and wanting to belong. And, you know, I've had some fantastic umpiring experiences, particularly at AFL level, the leadership that is shown by the guys in the current form of the group is mm is excellent and they've shown a lot of support to us. That culture is something that has changed over the years. I have noticed that. But, you know, when you're one person, it's very difficult to actually, I guess, pinpoint some of those less tangible issues around culture. You try to do it in a way that enables you to continue to do your job (laughs) and, and get along with your colleagues. And, 
you know, make waves when you when you have to, but probably avoid making waves when it's it may not be the wisest choice. And so I think when you have a cohort, as you say, you've got more women coming through. We've got 27 voices in this report who've come together. We're not identifying anyone. It's that ability to unite and really understand what some of those common issues are. We have had uh, already an online forum through the AFL and their people team with some of the state league umpires, um, female umpires, just to understand exactly how they're feeling and make sure they understand their support there. We've got another forum coming up through the Umpires Association and that's working with AFLW and AFL-listed female umpires. So I'll be facilitating that on behalf of the association. Um, And again, it's just another opportunity to go, hey, let's strike while the iron's hot. Um, Let's look at these recommendations and make sure we're taking action and we're taking the action that you want to see. We're consulting you about it. Um, it's just not this sort of well-intentioned attempt, to, uh, you know, by by an organisation <laughs> or you know perhaps a bunch of blokes who are, are trying to do the right thing. It's it's hearing from the voices who are at the centre of it. I am actually excited for the first time. I know we've had a recent announcement with the appointment of Lisa Laurie to GM yes. of umpiring. I think for the first time that I've been involved in umpiring, it's, it's almost like finally we've got a little bit of ownership over the future of of umpiring. Umpiring's have been a bit of an outlier for a long time. You know, a lot of the conversation, I mentioned Eleni and myself being a part of the AFL, trying to push umpiring into that broader football conversation and bring umpiring into football because, mm. you know, love us or hate us, you know, you need umpires. So I just think that's very exciting to have Lisa Laurie, someone with extensive experience across culture, diversity and inclusion, and her focus on high performance and pathways um, and being able to draw together all the things that need to happen for the future of umpiring in order to better footy. So, yeah, I'm really excited to see what Lisa's going to do. One thing I wanted to ask you about, Chelsea, and something that has been a bugbear of mine that I mentioned earlier, is not having umpires as part of footy coverage. And I feel like, you know, there's a there's a way footy media does stuff. There's game broadcast. They've got two commentators. They've got two special comments people. They've got a boundary person. The special comments people are players. Very rarely they might whack in a coach. And it feels to me like that's a bit stale at the moment, that we're not getting a a good bang for our buck in terms of broadcasting and getting educated about the game. Because one issue is that we have rule changes that might be super important, like the descent rule. They come in in the off season. And for a regular footy person like me, I watch, you know, round one and I think, what is happening? Uh, I have no idea what's happening. And then the commentators say, oh, what's happening? And I never find out what's happening. Mm. Do you think, is there a reason, first of all, there aren't more umpires in the media? And do you think there's room for that? Would that be a good idea? Mm. I'm thinking, (laughs) yeah, pause. Because I'm thinking, you know, carefully about this, because I have thought about it myself. Um, As you know, look, I, being someone who works in the media and has a little bit of experience in that regard, boundary writing and things like that, I have thought to myself, look, what what if I was commenting during a game? Or I know we have at times had umpires mic'd up. Now, in terms of the level of actual information that you get, (laughs) it (laughs) tends to be quite limited, I think, during the game. I think where the the opportunity arises is that ability to nip any conjecture in the bud and go, well, are we uncertain about what the rule is? The commentary team clearly doesn't know exactly what it is or how it's being interpreted. Can we nip that in the bud with with an umpire on the ground in the moment? I'm not sure how much you can get into the explanation in the moment um, of understanding exactly. I think we we do have a technical game, but... Look, I think what the opportunity also does is it, it humanises umpiring. And I think as a broader exercise to really understand where the umpire is coming from, um, it might not mean, look, we're going to get a five-minute 
explanation of something that's just been paid because you yep. know, the game the game continues. And it's moved on. We've got yeah. a job to do, um, and I think that's where the probably the the question arises. You know, do we want our umpires? being media people or do we want them being an umpire? Mm. So, you know, I think drawing a boundary and a, and a line around that, I do think there is room for humanising the job of umpiring because umpires are human beings and sometimes you just get a little bit of insight into what was going through the umpire's head at the time. It just It's going to reduce the amount of talk though, Tess. It's going to reduce <laughs> the number of stories. Um, it's going to reduce the sensational reporting. I don't know that the media would want it. <laughs> But maybe uh, counterpoint, maybe it would increase the content because you've got another person there who's providing you content. It doesn't necessarily have to be the umpire umpiring that game. It could be, I mean, we've got seriously experienced umpires. They're not umpiring every single game of the weekend. So it could be a separate umpire that's part of the coverage at quarter time, half time, they'd have a a quick chat. To an umpire and say, all right, these are the contentious moments. What do you think? Mm. Maybe the way we look at content is different. You know, content doesn't have to be argy-bargy or debacle. It could be, hey, what just happened and this is why. And we can still disagree with the rule, even if we knew what the rule really was and how it was meant to be implied. I mean, we could still disagree. I've got to say, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And, um, you know, because you do get tired of hearing the same commentary. You know, let's go to a break now and it's the same, let's just rehash what we've already heard. (laughs) As in if that, you know, if there's an alternative to that and it is shining a little bit of light on some education around the rules, um, you know, that's got to be a good thing for umpiring, uh, as you say, whether you agree or not. Yeah, all right, that's one to, to mull over. What do you miss about being at the ground? being at the footy. I'm probably a bit more of a footy fan at the moment where I can just flick on a game and just, you know, just enjoy the footy for what it is without worrying too much about, I guess, or linking into my own experience of, you know, positioning Mm -hmm. and what you're expected to do as an umpire. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm seeing the crowds back and that was something, you know, for the last Mm -hmm. couple of years um, we really haven't had that. And, you know, I did miss that. It had some benefits. I've got to say you could pick up a lot more um, inside the field of play. You could hear footies glance off posts and um, on fingertips and things like that, whereas normally yeah. you've got the crowd behind you sort of drowning out those sounds. I think what I realised over those those past couple of years is just how amazing the crowd is. And when I turn on the footy now, I just I look at the noise and the atmosphere and I've got a real appreciation for, yeah, the job that I've had and, um, mm. and you know, Look, I'm still on the list, so (laughs) won't write myself off here. But um, just an appreciation for the game, yeah. Mm. Chelsea, always good to see you. You're doing you're doing amazing. I hope I am. My my brain does feel a bit like cheese with the little hole, the little Swiss cheese. So I don't know if I've made any sense today, Tess. To be honest, I can't believe it because my baby's now 14 months, and I have never made more sense than you've just made when yours is just 12 weeks. So (laughs) you are doing very well and you've got a thriving beautiful girl who's finding her voice and she's going to be she's going to be yelling out ball or it wasn't a 50 or the opposite it was a 50 um in no time and I can't wait lovely to catch up with you Chelsea and we'll see you again soon absolutely Thanks to Tess and Chelsea for that conversation we're getting towards the end of the program as it would be uh but Lucy Race you really made us laugh this week when you sent us something inspired by one Steph Kiochi. You know, you've seen people talking about flag mantles. <laughs> I saw Steph Kiochi tweet after the Magpies beat Carlton. 
sorry, Julia, flag pies. Oh, <laughs> and it. it really made me laugh. It got me thinking that before too long, there would be something assigned to every team. I did make you laugh with Flag Coast Suns, but then started <laughs> thinking about why should we just limit it to the teams at the top of the ladder? You know, maybe there, there could be some other things. And um, I mean, like, gee, long time between flags. <laughs> I came up with two for you. I'd love to see this game. I'd like to see Sept Kilda up against Riz Temba. (laughs) I'm looking forward to watching Rebuild Thorn (laughs) next weekend. I've been paying attention down at the other end of the ladder. I think um, Essendon is Essendon and dusted. um, West Coast Coolers. (laughs) West Coast Coolers. That reference to West Coast Coolers reminds me of a, a trial that my friend ran once when we were junior lawyers and um, one of the witnesses had to give evidence in the, in the witness box and she explained that before there'd been this accident, she went out with some friends and she had a couple of West Coast Coolers, which is um, obviously a reference that's you know of a very particular vintage and uh, the judge leaned over at the bench and peered down his glasses and said, what is a West Coast cooler? <laughs> so, yeah, he was from a different class, I think. Uh, and North Melbourne becomes Tasmania. Oh, oh no. What is political? Look at her go. <laughs> I thought I was really going to um, ruin the friendship with Wiener, Wiener Swanee's dinner. <laughs> Different kind of bird. Disgusting, terrible. Um, Does anyone have any final business? I mentioned Wimbledon earlier and I just wanted to congratulate them. They've just entered the 21st century this week uh, (laughs) announcing that they will finally drop the prefixes Miss and Misses from the tournament. So no longer will we have Miss Naomi Osaka competing and gone are the days when Yvonne Goolagong won and the winner's board congratulated Mrs. Roger Crawley, which is her husband, of course. He was evidently the real hero that day. Congratulations to, to Wimbledon for finally getting up with the times. Back to you, Mrs. Amar. <laughs> well, they actually change the honour boards. Well, like, they're actually like getting the liquid paper out and starting again, or they just won't add more to what they just have to wait until they can find some liquid paper that comes in wood colour. That's <laughs> true. Or they can get someone to invent it. I don't know, actually, but I've wondered that. I hope they would change it. I mean, the idea that Yvonne Goolagong is up there as, with her husband's name is ludicrous. Him being on that honour board is real. Woman runs a marathon and Guy proposes to her at the end of the marathon vibes. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. Also, I really liked it when you said send congrats to Wimbledon because imagine if Wimbledon was trying to download a podcast and they'd be like, <laughs> I don't have that app. They'd be on their their iPad. Wimbledon listens to this pod, actually. Wimbledon is a friend of the pod, so that's why I directed it to them in the first person. Shout out, Wimbledon, and hello to the Pan Packs too who love to listen. (laughs) All right, the Super Bowl. Super Bowl. Are we all done? Yes. Okay, we're all done. Oh, there's only one thing left to say. I don't know if you know what it is. Go Go footy. footy.